Good morning, church body. It's good to see everybody. Um, I'm grateful for the prayers of our church, whether in public or in private. Um, I once heard a sermon at a, uh, at a conference that was um, talking about powerless praying. It was very convicting, just the title alone, right? Powerless praying. Um, and so I, I'm very grateful for the times of prayer that we have here as a body of Christ. It's not powerless praying. Uh, but so often in our own prayer lives, we, we feel powerless, we feel convicted, we feel weak. And I'm just carried along every single week by you know, the, the five or ten minutes, whatever length amount of time it is, of, of meaningful prayer uh, during our, our church service. Um, of course, like was mentioned earlier, the worship and song as well. And then, of course, we're going to spend a good 45 minutes at least in a, listening to the Word. Um, and I am grateful for it, as I know you all are as well, as we hunger and thirst for that righteousness, as we try to navigate life um, that God has, has given us here today. We're going to be doing uh, the third sermon in a series on Elihu. And we're going to be in Job chapter 34 today. Um, if I were to ask you how you learn best, some of us would say we learn by reading things. We learn by somebody telling me how to do it. We learn by somebody showing it to me. Maybe I'll just listen to a YouTube video or something, right? It's called a life hack, right? Most of us would say we're visual learners, but truly we learn best, not always, but we learn best through failure. You're guaranteed to have a good chance of learning when you fail. Uh, there's the lighthearted examples of uh, having a, a kitchen cabinet open above your dishwasher, right? Uh, someone tells you, oh, be careful for that. Well, you learn the hard way sometimes. You hit your head on it. That's a lighthearted example of learning through failure, right? You're not going to do that again, maybe twice. But the best way to learn about suffering is while we're suffering, while we're seeming to fail, maybe not failure, but it's suffering. Uh, you could read a book about suffering. Uh, when we were in Montenegro uh, last month, I believe, two months ago, there was a, a book laying around called Good News for Anxious, Anxious, Anxious Christians by Phil Carey. And it was laying around because they were translating it um, into the local language, into Serbian and Montenegrin. They had purchased the rights to it, or they were given the rights to it. Just, yeah, if you want to translate this, it's a great book about living a gospel-centered life. You could read that book. I would recommend it. Good News for Anxious, anxious Christians. While we're suffering, we're typically going to be anxious. But the best time to learn about suffering is while we're going through suffering. Uh, that's just the reality of it. Um, nonetheless, we are called to learn and apply God's word to our lives and our souls. And we're going to learn about suffering in the book of Job. But I want us to make sure we understand the, the thrust of the book from the genre that it's in. It's in the wisdom literature. We've said this once already, but it bears repeating because 
We need to make sure we have this hidden in our hearts, this truth hidden in our hearts from all three books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. All have the same theme, and that is for you to fear God. That's the point. It's not just about how to navigate suffering with the least amount of pain. It's about fearing God in the process. Proverbs tells us the way things should go and normally go. And chapter 1, 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ecclesiastes goes through and explains why things are the way they are in 12 short chapters. What do we do when things don't go well or the way we expect them to? And how does the book conclude after 12 chapters? And you only get to the conclusion after 12 chapters. It's not at the beginning of the book for a reason. The conclusion is to fear God and keep his commandments. It's kind of laid out in the way that Jesus taught with parables. Parables had one point, not many. One point. And to listen to it. And it was kind of a hidden meaning. In Ecclesiastes, God reveals to us to fear God and keep his commandments. Job explains the exceptions in life when things don't go the way they are. He is an illustration of that. And all of us have things in our lives that are unique to us, yet not uncommon to mankind. But we all have trials that you're just like, wow. That's a really hard trial. I don't know what that's like. But I have a really hard trial in my life, and we all can say the same thing. But Job is also themed with fearing God as a man who fears God. The book starts out by saying there once was a man from the land of Uz. His name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil turned away from evil. Now, Job didn't learn that completely. He didn't start out perfect. Okay? He did have the fear of God in him. I believe he had it in him the whole time, even though he crossed some lines. And he continued to learn the fear of the Lord as he gets about four chapters or so from the Lord at the end. The primary theme in the last four chapters where Job is rebuked by the Lord, I would say, is he's learning to fear the Lord. And so I've titled this particular sermon, Out of the Depths I Cry to You, or Out of the Depths I, I Call Out to You. Really as kind of a, a way to understand the entire book of Job, in chapter 34 being in the book of Job. That even though Job is crossing some lines with anger and accusations towards God, he is still talking to God. There is still an element of humble submission in him. He's calling out to God. And we call out to God during our times of suffering. Suffering is a cause to call out to God. Let that be a truth that you have in your mind, and in your heart. That suffering is a call or a reason to call out to God. And we call out to God for wisdom in our trials. James chapter 1 tells us if you lack wisdom, call out to God and ask him for it. He will give it to you just because you're humble enough to ask for it and admit that you don't know it. And during trials, why do we need to ask God for wisdom? Well, the previous paragraph in James chapter 1 says that when you go through trials, what should your attitude be? 
One of joy. I need a lot of wisdom to go through a trial and suffering with joy. To be like Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. But we know that trials are not pleasant at the time. Hebrews 12, 11 tells us that no discipline at the time, or suffering, if you will, seems pleasant at the time, but it readily admits it is rather what? Painful. One of the first stages in grief processing is to acknowledge the pain. And it's there. John Locke was a political advisor in England in the 1600s. He was a very influential philosopher, actually, as well as a politician. And he surmised that everybody makes a decision. Every decision you make is based on two things, and I think he's right. Our natural inclination is to make a decision based on avoiding pain and moving towards pleasure. Every decision we make naturally. I think that's helpful to acknowledge. But we've been talking in the Gospel of Mark about taking up your cross and following him. Well, that involves some pain. And so the Christian life is going to take that and turn it upside down. We have a song that we sing that I, I don't quite understand and I don't like it. There's one phrase that says, where pain is pleasure in your service. I am not to the point of singing that with all-out worship. It's with wonder and saying, Lord, I am not there like I would like to be. I do, we are called to carry our cross, but to outright say pain is pleasure, that, that's a hard, hard line to sing. But this idea of understanding that our decisions to avoid pain and move towards pleasure is, is important. Um, there's a line of Christian thinkers named John over the course of about 400 years I want to point out to you. Okay? Um, John Locke was a student of John Owen, who was an influential writer. Those two lived concurrently in the same time. And John Locke's writings were very influential 100 years later with Jonathan Edwards. Not many of us have read Jonathan Edwards, but he was influenced by John Locke's writings. Fast forward about two or three hundred years nowadays, and the other John, John Piper, read a lot of John Edwards. Okay, so there's just a line of thinking there and showing us how we make decisions. We try to avoid that pain. But God is our Heavenly Father, and does He allow us to experience suffering? He does. That is His will for mankind. It's His plan for us to call out to Him, as suffering is a call to cry out to God. One more last thought about suffering is that suffering has value in our lives because Christ has suffered. Simply because Christ has suffered. You can take away all the other thinking about everything, and quite simply, because Christ has suffered, suffering has value. That's an important thing to consider. Well, I'd like us to remember some of Job's story as we're jumping in to chapter 34. And it's been a while. It's a big book, and we're only focusing on uh, six chapters of Elihu. This is the third series in a sermon on Elihu. I want us to remember Job's story that after he had lost everything, his possessions, even his own children, his own health, he had three friends who came and comforted him. They were silent the first week that they visited him. 
This was probably the best time when they were his friends. They were just there listening. In crisis situations, presence is everything. They were good friends. There's a lot to be said for the discipline of silence. The Lord's Day is a day that's different than the rest of our week. Typically, our cell phones aren't buzzing like crazy on the Lord's Day. I got an email this morning. I sent out an email to some of our youth leaders this morning. And Microsoft is saying that um, today is a different day than the rest of the week. It sent me a little reminder. It said, do you want to send this during business hours? (laughs) And I thought, well, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's work. I'm just going to send it today. (laughs) But there's a lot to be said for the discipline of silence. There's a lot to be said for the discipline of rest. And Job's friends were silent that week. As you work towards the end of the book, you see that Job prays for his friends. We remember that there is no such thing as long-term relationships without forgiveness and reconciliation. But after Job's three friends interact with dialogue for about 30 chapters, we come to Mr. Elihu. In chapter 31, 32. I believe he is the prophetic voice in this book. He is the pastoral shepherd who is somebody who has humble confidence as he interacts with Job, waiting to speak last. He rebukes Job, and Job is listening. Job is not speaking. He is listening. When we were in Montenegro, one of the elders for the Bible church, if you will, in Montenegro that Stan is a pastor of and um, an elder at, one of the elders there, his name was Peter, He's from the UK, and he, his primary work is translating work from um, English into Montenegrin or Serbian. And then he's an elder, and he does ministry and tries to share the gospel uh, in Montenegro. He said that as he reads the book of Job, he sees Job as growing in his relationship with the Lord, growing in his understanding of how God relates with his people, that in the beginning, Job had a re- view of God that was transactional. I do this, God, and then you do this. I'm good, God, and you're good to me. In fact, it seems to be the same view that his three friends had. Job, you must have done something wrong. The transaction didn't go good, and so something bad's happening to you. Well, it's not the way it is. It's a relational relationship with God. God is relational. Yes, there are transactions, but Job grows, he said, and to understanding that it's relational. That it's about standing in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. That's the very thing Jesus told his disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We don't understand everything, but God is present with us in that relationship. When we come to chapter 34, I believe a good way to understand chapter 34 is to see that Job's countenance is starting to look down. He's not speaking. And in the stages of grief, I believe that he is on his way down to a settled outcome. 
You can see that he starts out with, real basically for stages of grief, okay? This is just three different ways that we process suffering or pain or grief. We first of all have a reaction. What was Job's reaction? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's where that song comes from. Blessed be his name in times of want and times of plenty, times of need, times of abundance. That's Job's initial reaction. And then he's quiet for a week, working his way up to action, or I'm going to call this active thinking. He's actively thinking and processing his trial. But first, he just has a reaction. When I was in high school, there was, uh, we, had, we had a soccer goalie, and uh, someone complimented him by saying he's not really a good thinker. You might not think that's a compliment, but it's okay not to be smart. It's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay not to be a good thinker, okay? He complimented him because as a goalie, he doesn't need to think about where the ball's going. What does he need to do? React. Go. Don't be a thinker. This kid just went and got the ball. Boom. Go up in the corner. Get it. Jump. Go. What was Job's initial reaction? He was praising the Lord. Now, he, then he spent some time thinking about it. I mean, he started out standing in awe of God, but then he kind of thought about it for a while. And his active thinking, you have about 28, 30 chapters of him interacting with his friends. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of him lashing out at God and others because of his own pain. Times of feeling hopeless. No doubt, we, you could read that and you can see there is some hope in there as well. Some glimmers of light where he knows his Redeemer lives. He's going to eventually end up at a settled outcome, which is not where we're at. I believe that we are here where this arrow is. Chapter 34 is Job coming down from his active thinking, coming down to a settled outcome. Now, Elihu is going to comment on the active thinking part of it. He's going to quote Job as if it's a court case or something. You want your trial, Job. Here are your words. I'm going to hold them against you. As Job is on this downward arrow to his settled outcome, I believe he's mourning his situation. I believe he's becoming more and more humble. I believe there's some sadness. And he is again silent. Before he comes to his settled outcome of digging in, standing in awe of God, having gratitude, having purpose, and being others-focused as he's praying for his friends. How do we know what clues in the text are there that Job is silent? Well, he doesn't speak in chapter 34. Let's look at chapter 33 and the three verses immediately before 34. Chapter 33, verse 31 says, Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, Elihu says. Be silent and I will speak. But he gives him an opportunity to speak and he says, If you have any words, answer me. Speak, I desire to justify you, that is to explain your situation. But if not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Job has an excellent mentor in Elihu. He's allowing him the opportunity to speak. But he doesn't run him over and say, Job, don't talk. He does say, be silent, but he first gives him an opportunity to speak. Elihu has a right to say that. Why? Because he waited to speak. He waited his turn. 
I think it's important to pick up on Elihu's humble confidence here. His understanding of, of people and how he's allowing Job to speak, yet still saying words in such a way that say, it's probably not a good idea for you to speak right now, Job. And we need to give room for other people to make mistakes sometimes. We don't always need to tell them when there's a puddle in the road. Just They'll figure it out. Or they'll see it and go around it. They'll learn through failure. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. There's a principle from Ecclesiastes 5 that I want to read to you. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. That <laughs> talks about listening. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It goes on to say, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Therefore, stand in awe of God. There's a place here for Job to be silent. But what we're going to see in chapter 34 is that Elihu is rebuking Job for much of his active thinking. Because Job is somebody who spoke in anger. Now, Elihu admitted he was angry earlier in the previous chapter. He is upset with Job and his friends. But Elihu had righteous anger. He was justified in his anger. Job has selfish anger. But I think it's helpful to understand that as Job is being rebuked, and as we're going to see some of, words, some of Job's words here, I believe Job has one fist raised at God. It's pretty obvious. What I want to say is that Job doesn't have two fists raised at God. There's a difference in somebody who's questioning their faith versus somebody who's losing their faith. I had an interaction with somebody recently who was going through a hard time, and on that particular day, that person seemed to be losing their faith instead of calling out to God and being humbled by a trial or a circumstance. Job is, is like this when he should be holding out his hands like this. Like he said in the beginning, the Lord gives and the Lord taketh away, but it seems like Job's like, well, let's talk about this, God. But let's have a little bit of compassion on Job because what did he lose? Not only going through financial hardship, he lost his children who he loved. Loved them dearly, prayed for them regularly. And he lost his own health, which eventually hits just about all of us. And I believe that one fist is appropriate because there's a contrast between Job and his children. Job's children are described as somebody who, as, as people who likely have cursed God in their hearts in chapter one. This seems to be people raising up their fists like this. But we are called to hold whatever we have in our hands like this, continually. 
So let's look at chapter 34. And let's see how Job's countenance is looking down, how Job is quiet. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 first. We're not going to cover every particular detail in this chapter. It's a long chapter. Let's look at the first nine verses to start with. Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. That's his introduction. Verses 5 through 9, he begins to quote Job. Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Really, Job? Verse 7, what man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, quote, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. If you find a brother or sister in Christ saying things like this, you should take them to task. That's your job. You don't have to wait for a pastor or a lihu. If you find somebody in hopelessness like this, First of all, listen to them as Elihu did, and then apply truth. We are all called to do that. On my heart today, I'm thinking about people who have done that in my life. I remember about 10 years ago as a, a new young pastor, um, we were walking in the parking lot, and it was during VBS, and I, I can't remember all the details, but I must have gossiped about something to somebody. There were four of us walking, and I was just talking to this one person, kind of thinking I was by myself with this person, right? Thinking it's okay if it's just us, right? And this um, more mature saint behind us, she was probably about 50 or so, and, um, and she just called me out on it right then and there. Isn't that gossip, Brian? It was uh, Beth Pye, Sandra. Just one of the most humble people you ever met. And, and this person could speak truth in my life. They called me out on it. Uh, and it wasn't an arrogant person. They, they were humble. We appreciate, as Proverbs says, when someone rebukes us. Well, that's the Christian way. That's the way we're supposed to end up, right? Job is being taken to task here. Verse 2 says that he is calling us to hear his words. That's a reminder in, in Deuteronomy, the, the Shema, to hear, to listen. You wise men. Who's he talking to? He's talking also to Job's three friends here. He has a chance to speak. Give ear. And consider, actively think through what I'm teaching you. As the ear tests words, as the palate tastes food. There is a time for deep thinking. But it sure is hard to do when we're distracted. And Elihu encourages us to make a choice for what is right. And the Bible will frequently have a call for you to make a choice and to know among yourself what is good. We see it repeated in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 33. He says, you must choose and not I. One of the first times we see this choosing presented in the scriptures is at the end of Joshua. What does Joshua tell the people? Choose you this day whom you will serve. 
whether the idols that you've been seeking after for a long time, or the God whom you've known, the God whom you've seen work powerfully. As you read the context of Joshua 24, you see that it's interesting how Joshua responds. It's very good theology. People say, okay, we choose God. Joshua says, you can't do it. No, you can't. What? Yeah, we choose God. Okay, we'll know that God is a holy God. You cannot serve him. He is a holy God. And there's an element of pointing to Christ. The only way we can ever serve God is because of Christ. And it's actually not us who serves God according to the book of Acts. It's God who serves us. God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. So, as we call out for wisdom from God, even the calling out of wisdom to God is something that he needs to provide for us. But there is a real call to choose what is right. And in this instance, I believe it's our active thinking and our attitudes of our hearts. Verses 5 through 9, Job has some very angry words in his life. And we all know what it's like when words are spoken in anger. And I can just imagine, I hope, and I believe, Job is here hanging his head ashamed of his words. His countenance is starting to look down. He's not defending himself. That's a sign of humility. It's a sign of humbleness. He says, I'm in the right. These are things that Job have said. He says his wound is incurable. He needs to be reminded that there is hope. That God is good. He says he's without transgression. This has in mind probably his intentional sins. I don't think Job means to mean that he doesn't have any sin, but if it's a transactional relationship, I have not outright sinned against God, is what he's thinking. But Job, verse 7, you are drinking up scoffing like water, traveling in company with evildoers, and walking with wicked men. Even saying, profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. This is very reminiscent of uh, Joe, I'm sorry, Psalm 1. Normally, when I look at Psalm 1, it starts out by talking about a blessed man. That blessed man is most assuredly Jesus Christ and somebody who would follow in his footsteps and walk on that narrow path. Live out the Beatitudes, the blessings, which apply to all New Covenant Christians. But in this instance... we see that Job isn't the blessed man. I used to think he was the blessed man as well, somebody who ultimately followed God. And you can say that in his settled outcome. But here, Elihu is describing Job as a wicked man, as a scoffer, and as a sinner. Listen to Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. By contrast, the blessed man is somebody who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
Job is being called to task for acting like a scoffer. God, he's not even worth following. Forget it. But we have to see that this is kind of like Peter denying Christ for three times. Is that the end of the story for Peter? No. Peter is restored. Is this the end of the story for Job? We all have bad days, do we not? Even bad seasons? Job is not, though, going to get away with it. You can't just say, oh, it's a bad day. He's being called to task for it. And so Elihu here is recalling Job's words spoken in anger. And what is Elihu's response to this? What is correct ways of thinking? In verses 10 through 15, Job, as he is silent, is told that God is in charge, Job. God is in charge. Verses 10 through 15. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Now I believe it's talking to anybody and everybody, not just the three men. You and me listen to God's revealed word. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. That is ultimately on judgment day. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? Who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Twice here, God is not just called God. He is called Almighty. The word here is Shaddai, frequently combined with El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty. In this instance, probably an abbreviation, Almighty. When we pray, me and you, we will often pray, God, I'm about to start my day, our Father who art in heaven. But there are times when we call out to God desperately, God, I need your supplies. God, I know you are strong. God, I know you are my provider. God, I know you are my creator. God, I know you have power over this situation, whatever it may be in our lives. Elihu is reminding Job, this is almighty God. Powerful over all of creation. We know the back end of the story because we see the beginning of it and how there's interaction and spiritual warfare going on. Job doesn't see that. And so frequently do we also not see all that's going on or know why it's going on. Daniel, when he was praying, was some sort of spiritual warfare being delayed in an answer for three weeks. There was some spiritual warfare going on. He didn't know it at the time. You don't need to know everything, Job. Just trust God is in charge. He truly is in charge. God is not going to do any form of wickedness. God does what is just. And it's just simply because God does it. When we say God is good, there's no standard by which we judge what God does. When we say God is good, we don't look at the standard of goodness and say, oh yes, this is good. God, you're doing good. No, simply because God does it, it's good. He is the definition of good. God does good. There's not what is good that's above God. Simple, whatever he does, it's right. 
We have to trust him in that. And he is a good God. And you see that throughout the story of the scriptures in so many different ways. He is good in that he has given us mercy. He is good in that he's even given the lost people less judgment by living 100 years instead of 1,000 years, or 80 years instead of 800 with the flood. He is a good God. He will not pervert justice. He is the one who created the world. And if he would call the end of anybody's life, it would be up to him to do so, and he could do that. God is in charge of everything. You move down to verse 20, and you see the same thing, and the same theme of God being in charge. In a moment, they can die. At midnight, the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand, but by whose hand? God's hand. We're not in charge of when we leave this world. It's one of the truths that you talk to somebody about when they're not enjoying their life and wanting to end their life. You tell them a truth. You are not in charge of when you get to leave this world. That's a fact. God is in charge of when you get to leave this world. But we go to funerals, as Christy went to her aunt's funeral today. Rob officiated that funeral. Just about every year, certainly, we go to some funerals. The older you get, the more you go to. And we're reminded how life is short, how God is in charge of the time when we leave. We may consider ourselves mighty. Here it says in verse 20, the mighty are taking away. But who is taking them away is the almighty. Job needs to remember that life is short, that God is in charge. That all flesh is like grass and fades away. But not so God's word. It lasts forever. Somebody recently asked me to uh, do a family tree. So I'm writing out the family tree, you know, mom's side, dad's side, and finished it all. And then they said, okay, now put an X on everybody who's deceased. So all of a sudden I'm putting X's on people. And I'm like, oh my goodness. In 100 years, I'm just going to be an X. (laughs) That's it. Like, put an X, they're gone. Now, some of those X's are meaningful, okay? I've got grandparents that, that I knew. It's more than just an X, but great-grandparents, etc. going on up, they're just an X, <laughs> gone. So we should cast off everything that hinders so we can run that race. Spend time in meaningful prayer instead of whatever the pursuits are of this world. So we're all reminded many times, especially when we go to funerals, that life is short, that God is in charge of everything. In verses 21 through 25, Elihu reminds Job that God sees our suffering. Verse 21, his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves, for God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overtones them in the night, and they are crushed. 
Verse 21, his eyes are on the ways of man. He does see all of our steps. This is important to know. We don't see everything. Who sees everything? God sees everything. You don't even need a trial. Job asked for a trial in verse 23. Really? You're going to teach God something that he hasn't known? That he hasn't seen? God, you missed this one thing. Again, in verse 24, there's this contrast between the mighty and the almighty. Shatters them without investigation. He knows what's going on. He overturns them in a night. You think back to the book of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And in one instant, he's removed from ruling. Not only is he removed from ruling, he's removed from the sanity of his mind. God does see our suffering. And he allows us to suffer. How many years did he allow the children of Israel to suffer in Egypt? 400 years. Well, how does it start out with the Exodus? I have indeed seen your suffering. What was God doing during that time? Building up a mighty nation. Building up a mighty nation that when they left, they were given all their goods. The Egyptians' goods. Demonstrating to the whole world a God who can separate not just a river, but a, uh, the Red Sea. Sea of reeds. So that they were supposed to go pretty quickly up to the land of Canaan, and the fear of God was before the people's eyes, but instead the people were just scared of people. The Israelites were scared of the Canaanites. But still, 40 years later, after the people had suffered and been delivered by really 11 mighty acts of God, if you count the 11th one going through the Red Sea, the people in, what's the first book in Joshua? Jericho. They had heard of this God. God was preparing for himself glory to all the nations through his nation. But in verse 29... We have a difficult truth. When God is quiet and he seems to hide his face. Verse 29 says, When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man. God has indeed spoken. He is not silent. God does see. But what do we do with this truth that we all experience. I don't understand the trial that, we're go that I'm going through, we may say. Seems like God is not answering my questions. It seems that God hides his face. Well, we know that God is in charge. We know that God sees. But Job, you also need to know that you must seek after a hidden God. God has revealed himself, but you must seek after him. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says what? What are you called to seek first? His kingdom and his righteousness. Then in chapter 7, listen to Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here's a great explanation for how God operates. 
He does allow us to suffer. He allows his children to suffer, but he wants you to seek him. He wants you to ask for things. He wants you to ask for wisdom. He does want you to ask for deliverance, but he wants you to trust him with the results. But it can be very difficult when we're going through a trial and some suffering and we don't know all the answers. But God gives us comfort through his spirit. God gives us answers in his word. And we think back to chapters in the Bible, such as Psalm 19, that remind us that God has spoken in creation. We know that there is a God. But this psalm concludes and emphasizes in the second half of the psalm by telling us how God has spoken to us most especially is through his word, his wonderful word his good word that is useful in all areas of life. And especially he has spoken to us through his son. And so what should our attitude be towards God? What should Job's attitudes be? We move to verses 31 and 32 and we see a correct attitude towards God is a teachable spirit. Has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment. I will not offend anymore. Meaning, I'm not going to cause accusation against God. Instead, our attitude should be in verse 32, teach me what I do not see. And if I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Here is repentance. Here is humility. Teach me what I do not see. That is a correct attitude towards God. It is a teachable spirit. That is to be agreeable. To admit my part of the contribution to any kind of conflict in humility. But the book, the chapter concludes by Elihu summarizing Job's incorrect attitude towards God as an angry spirit. Verses 35 through 37. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. He adds rebellion to his sin and claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Job, you have gone too far. Job, I hear that you're going through a hard time. But Job, God is good. God is in charge. He sees what's going on. God has spoken. He is not silent, Job. Seek after him, Job. But what has Job done? He's clapped his hands. He's not, he's not praising God. You ever seen anybody use their hands in sternness and anger? Now listen to me. Man, now somebody's angry, right? This is Job. He is upset with the Lord. He has been upset with the Lord, but now he's not responding. The Hebrew language is one of the first written languages in the history of mankind. It's not the first, but one of the first. It's a primitive language. And it speaks a lot of times with human gestures. When it talks about anger, the Hebrew says someone's flared their nostrils. Sometimes you can tell when somebody's mad just by their body language, right? 
Here it's describing Job's anger by clapping his hands, wringing his hands. He's, he's not happy. But this is not, again, how Job concludes. Let's jump ahead and let's see how does Job respond to the Lord after the Lord speaks for two chapters. Look at chapter 40. We're just going to look at verses 4 and 5. Job doesn't speak very much in this book anymore. He's just got two places of a few verses. Chapter 40, verses 4 and 5 says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? And now with his hand, I have laid my hand on my mouth right now. I am not speaking. Now I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will speak no further. I've said a lot, Job is saying, and I'm done speaking. I'm going to sit in silence. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to take from your hand what you deliver, Lord. And now Job's hands, instead of clapping in anger or his fist being raised to heaven, where are his hands? Over his mouth. And so we remember that with many words is much sin. And we go ask God for help and wisdom through our circumstances and in our trials so that we can go through them with joy, but also, as James goes on to say, so we can be very careful with what? Our words. Job has gotten in trouble with his words. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that the rebukes that we experience in our own life would be taken to heart. Lord, I pray that we would learn the easy way from Job. Let our words be few to mankind or even to you. But that we would have words, Lord, and that you would forgive us where we have crossed a line, where we have lashed out at you and others because of our own pain. I pray, Lord, you would help us to have humility to practice the spiritual discipline of silence, to let you work, to ask you to work. But that the words we do speak would be effectual and powerful prayers, not powerless prayers, but prayers that are full of your word, prayers that are full of forgiveness towards others and towards ourselves, recognizing that you're in charge, recognizing that you have given us a great salvation, recognizing that you see our sufferings. We do pray you would bring us great comfort in the midst of any trials that we go through. We thank you for uh, the shepherds that you've put in our own lives, the mentors you've put in our lives to guide us with your truth. In your name we pray, amen.